0: Greetings comrades, and welcome to Eastern Border. It's time for a news episode once again, so I'll be here looking at, uh, well, the weirdest things that have happened lately, but oh boy, do we actually have some really interesting stuff inside here, this one, such as a short explanation of the GRU and what it stands for preparing for a future show, really. <laughs> but my team says it's time for a little housekeeping, or, you know, Calvis shall have my head on a pike and then he'll rip my jaw off too. Learn some Boston history there. See, we have a Discord channel now where I'll be appearing now and then and will be available for Q&A sessions for my patrons weekly. Because, well, uh, due to my long-term plans about moving to Missoula, Montana, we'll be taking those Patreon reward things even more seriously than we did in the past. Oh, and we're thinking about switching from a per-episode Patreon plan to the per-month plan as well, but there will be more warnings about that in the future, and once I will figure out how that works, I'll let you know. Oh yeah, and uh, mandatory that uh, I must remind you to buy our t-shirts with the awesome new art and uh, everything. Uh, I'm dead serious. Uh, send help. Send help. <laughs> oh, by the way, but seriously, you can also get signed prints too. If you mean, be about it, that is. But now I am finally done with the state mandate. I'm looking at you, Calvis, once again. I'm done with the state mandated capitalism. That out of the way, and again, <clears throat> remember to join our Discord channel. Links in the description but yeah uh, you know uh, for this episode to begin uh, according to the survey that's on our homepage quite a lot of you guys actually are handling guns in some way or form we have ex-military we have current military we have law enforcement we have a lot of you people who actually carry guns and this one's this one's to you folks especially to the police officers if I have to think about it I mean do you guys who like have a lot of guns have you ever like run into the street? completely off-duty, that is, if you're a police officer or in the military, and, you know, uh, drunkenly fired your handgun into the air, just for fun. Because that's what they do in the Caucasus region, that's, that's their national celebration, because that's where, like, AK-47s pop on the street. But, carrying on, after doing that, have you ever sprinted back to your friends, and claimed, openly and loudly, that you've emptied your weapon, only to be told that there still might be one bullet jammed in the chamber? Oh yeah, and after this, uh, this warning, uh, did you then insist that the gun was empty, and just to prove it to your pals, uh, did you put your pistol to your temple and pull the trigger, firing that last one round into your head? Well, if so, if you actually managed to do all those previously mentioned things, you've had a lot of common with... um. A police officer in Dagestan city, which is again in Caucasus region of Russia, where people actually do pull out their AK-47s for celebrations, the police officers there in the city of um, Khasavyurt, uh, that guy, did literally everything described above, and, well, he was actually lucky enough to somehow manage to survive. According to the local interior ministry officials, the officer in question was quote, already inebriated when he fired his Stitchkin automatic pistol into the air on October 25th. After claiming to his drinking buddies that he had emptied the entire clip, he proceeded to demonstrate the gun's emptiness by pulling the trigger, with the muzzle pointed at his head. There is still a bullet in the gun, however, and it promptly flew into the officer's skull, as you would expect from firing a gun into your head. He didn't die however and he remains hospitalized in a serious condition well according to news agencies TAS. Well, uh basically this guy well according to the interior ministry will be dismissed and well everyone around him will face disciplinary measures. Why is this important? Well, <laughs> this might seem like a very funny entry or depressing if uh, if you might not get why it's like super funny when you speak about a random cop who just literally fired a bullet in his head. But we'll get to that shortly. We're talking about state services being incompetent. And that's that's a part of the bigger picture, which is probably going to be the theme of tonight's show. You see, probably the most important organization in Russia currently that uses guns, well technically they should, is the GRU. And uh, honestly speaking, you've probably heard of those guys, they're the <laughs> kind of still commonly used initialism for the country's military intelligence directorate. And this is important because, you know, you all know about the Skripal case, you all know about the Netherlands case, and, well, recently, we found out that there are people in Austria, of all the things, feeding for 20 years NATO's secrets to Russians. Now, um, GRU is a weird thing, and uh, Putin is now proposing to bring back its old name, which is GRU, so, I'll be making an episode about them specifically, but I can tell you that, as far as I know of, the old guys from the Soviet era must be, like, spinning in their graves with magnets not touching them to, like, generate electricity, because the new GRU that can fall in for things is something extremely new and something that we did not know about in the past. So, what is the GRU, really? Well, technically, they are the subordinate to the Defense Ministry. They are the main intelligence directorate and at this given point, technically, it doesn't exist. See, in 2010, following massive reforms of the army, which, by the way, a lot of people complain because these major reforms of the army introduced such things as, finally, some sort of centralized general command and a more organized officer corps at the same time weakening Russia's ability to project military force abroad which is strange, uh, because they sort of optimized it, but they lowered the initiative on lower levels, which makes them less flexible in the field, in these reforms, Russia's military intelligence agency was renamed the, quote, main office of the general staff of the defense ministry, so GU in Russian for short. However, obviously, no one stopped referring to these guys as anything but the GRU, which is the thing that you might have heard everywhere, both by journalists and in documents, including indictments by the U.S. government, and, you know, all announcements by the Dutch authorities, and Austrian authorities, and British authorities, and, well, you get my point. Back then, some agency veterans, guys who were, like, really running the show there for a long while, and who were among the best Soviet agents in the field, because GRU, unlike KGB, KGB was feared by the people, GRU was truly scary. These guys were quoted saying that former Defense Minister Anatoly Serdyukov apparently caught more than just a letter from the agency. The best brigades in the GRU Spetsnaz fell under the knife of the reforms. In November 2010, officers had celebrated Military Intelligence Day at the Crocus City Concert Hall outside Moscow, and they, back then, were raising toasts to the cherished memory of the GRU. See, many GRU officers at that point, the guys who were there in the Soviet era, the guys who made you scared. If you're an American, at least, or somewhere in the Western world, those, those were the guys who focused only on foreign detection. GRU were the foreign spies that were never working inside the country, unlike KGB, who tried to pull off both things. Yeah, many of them lost their jobs in the reforms, and some research institutes that worked with the agency literally just closed down. The Defence Ministry's Military Academy, by the way, uh, the same one where Anatoly Chepiga of the Skripal murderers fame and, you know, 123 meters of a cathedral studied, yeah, a lot of instructors there were fired. And now, in 2018, we can see how their efforts have been paid back, because in the effort to centralize everything and make it subordinate to the president, they've lost their kind of cutting edge, because... In the Soviet era, there was a saying that the CIA had way more money, but the GRU had way better men. Well, apparently modern GRU has neither. Then again, if you think about it, there is also another intelligence service there in Russia, which is called SVR. It's technically Russia's foreign intelligence service. What separates them by this point, what separates GRU and SVR, actually could mostly be visible only to those inside these two agencies. In 2006, one of uh, the SVR lieutenant generals explained that the SVR collects political intelligence, while the GRU collects military intelligence. The structure and whatever these guys do, obviously, they're both state agencies, they're super classified. The Sergei Tetrakov, revealed more than anyone about the SVR's methods and training in a collection of interviews, like, which were published in 2008. And uh, you should, like, totally read that book. It's called, quote, Comrade J. The Untold Secrets of Russia's Master Spy in America After the End of the Cold War. Uh, written by journalist Pete Early, by the way. The grandson and son of KGB officers, Tetrakov, spent his youth reading uh, Ian Fleming novels and dreaming of becoming a spy. In the early 1980s, KGB recruiters invited him to participate in the student dictation program to France. There, he would collect intelligence about the, at this point, newly elected president, François Mitterrand. When Tetrakov returned, he was sent to, quote, Forest School, not far from Medvedovko in northeast Moscow, like, you know, basically everyone from intelligence workers there. Tetrikov and his cohort were trained to work with sources. For example, they learned not to discuss collaboration with contacts until meeting at least seven times, giving them the chance to lean each other's source habits and personal problems and stuff like that. They were taught to use, like, all these portable cameras, to invent their own legends, well, basically backstories, like, on the fly, and, you know, to plant and retrieve bugs. The very same bugs. That, you know, KGB is so famous for. These guys usually practiced this at Gorky Park in Moscow, mind you. The collapse of the Soviet Union had basically no effect on Tetrakov's intelligence work. He soon ended up in the States, and by the mid-90s he was in charge of the SVR station there, operating under the United Nations cover. And, yeah, as you might have noticed lately, uh, other agents in the United States, usually, and still now, were posing as reporters from the news agencies TASS and Komsovyskaya Pravda, and often as diplomats. In New York, Russian intelligence agents worked in the Manhattan building that housed Russia's permanent mission to the United Nations. Basically, ordinary diplomats used kind of the lower five-fourths, as, as per usual, you know, the ordinary diplomats are away from the agency work. Meanwhile, intelligence workers and, you know, the cryptographers, they took over the upper floors, the so-called submarine floors. The walls in the building were fitted with vibrating pipes that emitted white noise, and there was a total absence of telephones and internet-connected computers. SVR agents also worked at Russia's consulate in the Bronx, where they copied the documents of United States citizens who applied for Russian visas. The agency later used this information when inventing the new identity for its spies in America, who were supposed to find jobs at organizations tied to the United States government. On the rooftops on his consulate and the United Nations Permanent Mission Buildings in New York, Russia installed special antennae designed to intercept telephone calls across the entire city. Agents called this equipment Pulse Signal. Titrikov says that the Federal Protective Service, the FSO, General Viktor Zolotov. Hey, Viktor Zolotov, remember that guy? Yeah, that's that dude who dueled Navalny. Well, try to at least. And apparently, well, Mr. Zolotov once even attacked him by surprise, kind of as a joke, knocking him unconscious at a cafe in Brighton Beach in 2000. That was weeks ahead of Vladimir Putin's visit to the United States. They were dangerous, tetrakov told Pete early. I didn't see a difference between Yeltsin's people and these unsophisticates who were the president's closest friends. Also present at the Brighton Beach meeting was Yevgeny Murov, who headed the FSO until 2016. Because, yeah, Zolotov, by the way, is now the director of the... National Guard thingy. I'm pretty sure you've heard about that last episode. According to Tetrakov, then FSO deputy, director Alexander Lukin claimed that Murov and Zolotov had previously discussed ways to murder Alexander Volodyn, then pushing Steve of staff, because they believed the president was jealous of him. So in 2000, Tetrakov asked the United States for political asylum. Now about how the GRU choose and train its staff, and that's even more because they're like even more tied to the military. They're separate, yet they've been there for a bit longer than SVR guys. They have the conservatory. See, GRU officers train at the Defense Ministry's Military Academy at 50 Narodnyo Polčinyi Street, or National Defense Street, in Moscow. Not far from the region there, where they are the HQ of GRU and the research institutes affiliated with those guys. This academy is better known as the conservatory. You know, a musical term. Military intelligence agents, including cybersecurity specialists, also tried at the Cherepovets Higher Military School of Radio-Electronics. For example, uh, two of Anatoly Chepiga's neighbors from the Russian State University for the Humanities dormitory in Kirovogradske Street, where he was registered in the early 2000s, yeah, those guys graduated from this school. Another trading grounds for the GRU agents is the Alexander Mohorzyski Military Space Academy, where Alexey Mollerietz, the GRU agent recently accused of carrying out hacker attacks in the Netherlands, was a student. Academy instructors usually choose their new students by sending out recruiters to military units because of the country, because, you know, they still have conscription and draft, and then they review the records of young officers. They interview potential recruits at their homes and then invite the most promising candidates to Moscow for testing. Assessments in Moscow last a week, starting each morning and ending in the late evening. Candidates endure hundreds of exams, testing their knowledge of foreign languages, their attention span, memory, mental acumen, so-called noise immunity, and again, so-called information stamina. This means that basically one test might ask them to repeat a phrase in unfamiliar language, while another could show them dozens of mugshots and then ask candidates to recite each person's name. There are also interviews with the review board, which might ask candidates about their favorite alcoholic beverages, their reasons for wanting to join Russia's military intelligence, and even how they feel about checks Or women, but literally, my source says checks, so gotta put it in accurate form, cause old you, you guys who used to work there, they're sort of angry. Anyhow, the training there usually lasts three years. The first year of instruction puts special emphasis on foreign languages, operating special purpose machinery, area studies, encryption, decryption, stuff like that, and a lot of course covered intelligence work. Which these guys have been failing lately. Maybe. There are even classes in how to invent your own backstory and how to evade surveillance. Each student is assigned a sector of Moscow, where he's supposed to plot roads for potential meetings with other agents, determine locations for eavesdropping devices, and detect anyone tailing him. The FSB officers, the counterintelligence guys, the followers of the KGB, usually play the counterintelligence role. One of the most important assignments at the conservatory is penetrating a high-security facility. The future spy must gain admittance legally, for example by befriending someone, who in turn gets him an entry permit. Now, what do GRU guys do? The Defence Ministry's military academy, the conservatory, has three departments. The first department trains undercover agents who operate under diplomatic protection. They're also called suit jackets, by the way. When, you know, when they do their nasty work in your countries, these guys start as advisors, secretaries to ambassadors, representatives of Russian companies in other countries. The usual stuff, the businessmen who visited Salisbury under the auspices of actually seeing the cathedral. They're responsible for communications with undercover agents and foreign recruitment efforts. One such suit jacket was one Viktor Ilyushin, who was expelled from France in 2014. Officially working as an Air Force deputy attaché at Russia's embassy in France, GRU agent Ilyushin tried to obtain so-called intimate information about one of President François Hollande's staff members. The Conservatory's second department trains military attachés, who are representatives of Russia's armed forces serving on diplomatic missions. Eduard Shishmakov, whom Montenegro officials say he tried to organize a coup in 2016, studied in this department. In 2014, he worked as a military attaché in Poland and was later expelled. The third department of conservatory, meanwhile, prepares officers who will lead special operations abroad. GRU defectors and websites, you know, dedicated Russian armed forces, speak about the GRU's structure as follows. 1st division. Intelligence gathering in Europe. 2nd division the united states third asia fourth middle east and africa fifth strategic reconnaissance sixth communication surveillance seventh information analysis service eighth subversion and twelfth twelfth b information war The website, for the main office of the Russian Defense Ministry's general staff, says broadly that its officers provide the country's leadership with information meant to create conditions that are, quote, "...conductive to the successful realization of the Russian state policy on defense and national security," end quote, while also contributing to the state's development. This language is lifted directly from Russia's federal law on foreign intelligence gathering. According to the law, Russian intelligence agencies can work confidentially with their informants and take measures to, quote, "...conceal their personnel." Agencies are permitted to use both public and covert methods, but not in relation to Russian citizens, not on Russian territory, and not in cases where people are harmed. Alexander Shlyakhtarov, who headed the GRU in the late 2000s, said in 2011 that the agency's job is to, quote, discover and analyze threats to Russia's national interests in military security. His predecessor, Valentin Korolevnikov, said in 2003 that GRU also collects intelligence about research carried out by the foreign states. The GRU does most of its intelligence gathering through so-called illegals, which are deep-cover agents, who live in foreign states under false names. Additionally, separate identities can be created for agents who travel abroad to carry out special missions, which appears to be what happened with Chepiga and Mishkin, or, you know, Ruslan Boshirov and Alexander Petrov, nice guys who did the script poisoning. Sometimes undercover agents' assignments can last decades. One GRU veteran recalled how his academy classmate was given the backstory and sent to live in the Arab country for the next 24 years. He bought a kiosk in a market and opened a shoe repair business where he met with agents. There are often reports and dispatches hidden in the heels of the shoes bought to him. My father died without never knowing that I serve in the military intelligence, though I was already general by the time he passed away, said Sergei Lebedev, one of the GRU's top officials in 2005. He was very proud that I was a diplomat. He told everyone that his son worked for the foreign ministry. So, a bit further on. Is GRU responsible for the information war as well? Well, logical question. See, disinformation has been one of the military intelligence directorate's main objectives since it was founded. From the beginning, KGB Foreign Intelligence, Department A, and the GRU have been responsible for Moscow's active measures. The disinformation department grew out of the disinformed bureau, which uh, first appeared in 1923, with the objective of creating false information and phony documents about domestic affairs in Russia and, quote, preparing the ground for the release of fake materials. Some of Russia's greatest disinformation successes, which, by the way, uh, are described in detail if you ever happen to be at the Churchill Archives Center, include... The following things, so. In 1923, the disinformed Bureau published revelatory articles about Grand Duke Kirill Vladimirovich in newspapers in Bavaria, where he was living, three years before he proclaimed himself emperor in exile. The exposés led many Russian monarchists and German sponsors to abandon him. In 1950, Soviet military intelligence invented reports that the United States were using biological weapons in Korea, supposedly dropping bombs filled with insects and rats infected with cholera and the plague. I mentioned this about, you know, my public episode, like I think it was 21st or something, where it was also stated that you guys literally drank the blood of the babies. In the 1960s, military spies spread false rumors about ties between the American intelligence community and the murder of President John F. Kennedy. Soviet agencies financed the work of Mark Lane, who popularized his conspiracy theories in several books. Moscow also fabricated documents and letters linking Lee Harvey Oswald to the CIA and FBI. And, trust me, those things were fabrications, and, well, all GRU guys were extremely, extremely happy about them. Between 1972 and 1973, Soviet military intelligence financed roughly 5,000 articles in Indian newspapers in support of then-Prime Minister Indira Gandhi. Because, well, they thought to boost up that nationalism aspect. In 1983, Soviet military intelligence spread rumors that Korean airlines, Flight 007, shot down by the Soviets on September the 1st, was a spy plane sent by the CIA. In the late 1980s, Soviet spies circulated false information that the AIDS epidemic, the AIDS epidemic, was due to the experiments at a secret military biological laboratory in the United States. Soviet military intelligence passed fabricated documents to a CIA officer who later wrote about them in books. In the late 1980s, by the way, Soviet military intelligence also promoted conspiracy theories that the 1978 Jonestown deaths were part of a CIA operation. Leonid Shebarshin, one of the top officials in the Soviet intelligence committee, said in 2003 that spies are able to find reporters at any newspaper who are willing to publish a needed story for the right price or amount of booze. Shubarshin supervised the USSR's disinformation campaign in the 1970s and 1980s and told Kommersant, one of the newspapers in Russia, that the only newspaper in which he never managed to plant a story was the Washington Post. Congratulations, my colleagues in the Washington Post, I suppose. He also claimed that the KGB's Department A paid for the publication of articles in the Western press about Gorbimania and Perestroika. But this is... this is not the craziness. See in 2012, Shebarshin was found dead in his home after he apparently shot himself. Twenty-two years earlier, the GRU supervisor for disinformation in the States, Dmitry Lislovik, died when he fell from the window of his apartment. Since the fall of the USSR, the agencies and organizations involved in Russian military intelligence have apparently not abandoned the use of disinformation. Since 2016, American officials have accused Moscow of running a so-called troll factory in St. Petersburg to infer in U.S. elections by fielding discourse saboteurs. And this comes straight from the source, and yeah, well, if it wasn't for personal involvement with them, I'd also be skeptical about troll factories, but no, by this point I think you'd pretty much spot them. Uh, in my case, trolls mostly leave um, one-star reviews by pointing that I must be a super pro-communist show, and that I'm against liberty, and that I hate Putin and Jesus and whatnot, because, you know, obviously I'm super pro-communist, and you would know that if you'd listen to a single episode of my show. This is kind of crazy. <laughs> In 2016, well, huh, then again, quoting the sources here, the group allegedly organized political events in the United States and spread viral and promoted content on social networks. And interestingly enough, according to research by independent Russian media, like this time it's Medusa, that the trolls' efforts to sow discord in American society may have even included tweets meant to amplify the right-wing backslash to Star Wars The Last Jedi. Not like that was a good movie, anyways. I didn't like it that much, but still, even though, even though we can't say much about the GRU's involvement in Piersburg's troll factory, which definitely is a thing that exists, because that thing is tied with Yevgeny Prigozhin, the guy who runs his own special forces and like his spetsnaz. <laughs> yeah, we definitely know that. Well, it wouldn't have been done without Putin allowing it to happen. See, the GRU is part of the Defense Ministry, and they work through building up some sort of research companies, so-called research companies, and uh, those are their cyber forces. In 2014, the Russian Defense Ministry created its own information operation troops for action in, quote, cyber confrontations with potential adversaries, end quote. Later sources in the Defense Ministry explained that these new troops were meant to, quote, disrupt the potential adversaries' information networks, end quote, again. I like using those words. The reportedly went looking for hackers who have had problems with the law. According to an instructor at the Defense Ministry Center that trains the new cyber forces, students prepare for future conflicts by developing cyber attack algorithms. In recent years, cyber attacks on government agencies in multiple countries, the United States, Estonia, Georgia, Ukraine, Turkey, Latvia, literally everything, have coincided with escalations and tensions between Moscow and everyone else. Accordingly, many Russian hackers work at these research institutes filled with GRU. Honestly. So what are these research institutes and how are they tied to this intelligence? And there are dozens of them. And we know reliably about a handful. First of there is the Defense Ministry's forty sixth Central Research Institute, which is called Military Unit five four seven two six. That is a center for military technical information and intelligence about the military potential of foreign states. It is located at 86 Kroshogrevskoya highway and was previously subordinate to the GRU directly. The locals, by the way, they call this building the Pentagon. Not because of its shape, mind you, but because of the secrecy that surrounds it. We like to use American abbreviations, or American terms for a lot of things, I suppose, because it's kind of cool sounding. Staff at the institute have been characterized as, quote, the most informed people in the GRU, and it's managed its part, and um, Russia's Security Council as well. The building that neighbors this research institute houses a small company called SteadyHost, which owns the IP addresses for StopGeorgia.ru. A website, by the way, where Russian hackers show the tips about which Georgian websites to target during the 2008 war in South Ossetia, as well as hyperlinks to the software needed to carry out these cyber attacks. Then there's Defense Ministry's Center for Special Studies. It's based in Moscow in Swoboda Street. Medusa, by the way, whom I love and appreciate, wrote at length about this institute in 2016. Created two years earlier, these guys advertised job vacancies on deployment websites aimed mainly at graduates from engineering schools. More than anything, really, these guys were looking for crazy staff who could, like, um, analyze exploits and find vulnerabilities in different networks. These guys, oh boy, the people who were hired, were granted confidential security clearance, which literally requires their staff to give advance notice when they were traveling abroad, and a starting monthly salary as high as 120,000 rubles, which is ridiculously high for Russia. That's uh, about $1,800 per month. Uh, in comparison, your average Roscosmos engineer who works in Russian spacecraft gets only about $200 to $500 per month. Just saying. And also, this is interesting because the Center for Special Studies employed Yevgeny Seribyakov, who was expelled from the Netherlands in April 2018, and he was one of the guys who were trying to hack the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, the OPCW guys. Then there's the military unit 26165, the Khmovchinski barracks. It's located at 20 Komsomolsky Prospect. This unit is perhaps the Russian military's biggest repository of hackers and everything. This is where you find the GRU's 85th Central Research Institute, where cryptographers create decryption algorithms. Several hackers uh, suspected of cyber-attacking the United States and Europe have apparently worked in this unit 26165. When WikiLeaks published the stolen emails of Emmanuel Macron on May 7, 2017, which is just the day before the French presidential election, and by the way, Emmanuel Macron does a lot of weird things, but hey, in general, he's pretty cool. And everyone on the Russian internet, essentially guys with too much free time on their hands, noticed almost immediately that someone named Georgi Petrovich Roshka modified nine of the published emails. Roshka turned out to be an employee at several Russian military intelligence research institutes. In a participant list for one conference where he was named as a speaker, Rozhka was identified as a specialist at the GRU's 85th Central Research Institute, located at, guess where? 20 Komsomoyevsky Prospect. And it was from this building that the OPCV attack suspect Alexey Morinets took a taxi to the airport before boarding his plane to the Netherlands. According to the United States intelligence, this was also a base of operations for at least 10 hackers and GRU officers who infiltrated the Democratic National Committee computer network. Then there's also the military unit 74455. That one is based at 22 Kirov Street. Officially, this is the address of Novator Business Center, but the building's entrance has a sign indicated that it also houses the, quote, Center for Daily Operations Management, end quote, which according to representatives from the Defense Ministry General staff is what they call research institutes created for, <clears throat> the operation coordination of military agencies. Oh yeah, and the United States Justice Department states that this building was also a workplace for some of the GRU hackers who broke into the DNC in 2016. And then finally, the thing that we have about these guys is the 18th Central Research Institute. These guys work specifically with communications electronics. Nothing, completely, is known publicly about this outfit. <laughs> but yeah, this is, this is one of the Adia 51 things... Because, yeah, I've also gotten emails about this, because if you use us on internet, who basically, you look at the 18th Central Research Institute, and if you want to write a kind of supernatural fiction about something, shout out to the Astonishing Legends, you're the best guys. Uh, if you want to write some historical fiction, uh, which in lieu of supernatural, you can write about this, because there's a rumor that there's a UFO crashed in 1959, hidden an underground floor at 22 Kirov Street which is also supposedly connected to Moscow's Metro-2, which is the secret subway system used to evacuating um, important military personnel. I'll definitely go back to the 18th Central Research Institute at some point in the future, because, wow, those guys are essentially Russian Area 51 except probably even more secretive than anything. <laughs> These guys uh, who work there... They're crazy, because if you read Russian internet, and uh, I've actually you know spoken with some people there, and obviously, not claim, but... Uh, Sovinformo Sputnik, which are these guys. That's the division of GRU's Space Intelligence Operations. And the craziest thing that they've done is that in 2000, these guys were the first to photograph Area 51 in the States. It's just crazy. Also, of course, GRU has its own Spetsnaz. And interestingly enough, uh, there is more to be known, and more is known, about the GRU Spetsnaz than any other division within the agency. These troops are, you know, your typical James Bond guys. They're the focus of films and reports and everything, really, and, and this is how the public actually learns about what they do. In the early 2010s, when the reforms happened, the GRU Spetsnaz was transferred to Russia's paratroopers in army command. Today, the Spetsnaz are part of the Special Operations Forces based outside Moscow in Kubnika II. From 2014 to 2015, the group was under the command of Alexei Dumin, one of Putin's former guards and the current governor of the Tula region. Tula is, by the way, where all the samovars come from. Holding its soldiers to enormously high standards. They brutalize their soldiers, it's just crazy, but again, I'm going to go in-depth, and trust me, this GRU history is nowhere near in-depth to the way that you should be learning about it. The GRU Spetsnaz is considered one of the most elite branches of Russia's armed forces. According to, quote, preparing a spy, the GRU Spetsnaz system, which is a book written by former Special Forces troops, spies in the GRU Spetsnaz are expected to be capable of essentially everything. Parachuting, rappelling from a helicopter, hang gliding, steering a speedboat, operating heavy machinery, flying a plane, navigation, using the weapons of a likely enemy, swimming long distances, playing mines, rock climbing, identifying on site any firearm, military uniform and insignia, using disguises, and moving silently on any terrain. The book says Russia's military intelligence recruits people who exhibit above-average stamina and quote passive-aggressive personality traits. Candidates must be venturesome, value male camaraderie, and be able to tailor their behavior to any situation. In boot camp, GRU Spetsnaz troops also undergo psychological training, for example to prepare them for seeing a lot of blood, and inflicting injuries on others. Soldiers are subjected to an exercise where they have to catch a live rabbit, kill it by smashing its head against a tree, quickly behead the animal, and then drink its blood while holding their breath. We made this scarecrow. A mannequin. We dressed him in a US Army uniform and hide some document in his shirt pocket. This is, by the way, Sergei Kozlov in his book about this situation. Then we dump buckets of blood on the mannequin and smear the guts and in other innards taken from a stray dog all inside the unbuttoned jacket. And the intelligence officers have to search this corpse. Far from everyone can just dive into a bloody mess of guts, but overcoming this psychological barrier is simply necessary. No less important is preparing men to kill the enemy by any means That their training, which is another area where stray dogs can come in handy. Psychologically, it's extremely difficult to waste a completely innocent creature, but it will wait on a man far worse if he's required to murder a civilian who accidentally discovers his group behind enemy lines. So yeah, that was the old one, but we're carrying on about this one. Hey guys, Annette here. Hope you are enjoying our new episode of the Eastern Border. As always, a big thank you to all of our Patreons. The show would not be possible without your help. If you are not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to the Eastern Border page on patreon.com. Please remember to also follow us on our social media, like Twitter, where we are known as Eastern underscore Border, and on our Facebook page. Otherwise, you'll miss all the updates about the Eastern Border and its crew, and be like me, who has to find out on the show... That your boss is moving to Montana. We also have a new Discord server, so if you're interested in that, find the link in the description of this podcast. And shout out to all of our California listeners. I hope you are all doing all right after those horrible, horrible fires. Our thoughts are with you guys. That's it for now. See you online. Cool fact. or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So what did the GRU actually do? Well, most of their books, and when people who are veterans of this write about this, then uh, they say that the most successful operation ever by the GRU Spetsnaz was um, the storming of the Tajbek Palace in Afghanistan, and the assassination of President Hazi Amin, which basically began the Soviet-Afghan war. We've made an episode about that. That was really, really terrible. Well, in the geopolitical sense, but the operation was really great. The assault successfully overthrew Amin and installed Babrak Karmal, who was basically he was loyal to the USSR. That thing didn't begin one of the biggest disasters in human history. Nope. <laughs> but still, uh, 11 GRU officers died in the raid, along with Amin and 350 palace guards. One special forces soldier later recalled, quote, The guys who made it to the second floor kicked in the office doors and threw in their grenades. They were already up ahead in the hallway when Amin jumped out behind them in his Adidas underwear and t-shirt. I think he had already been fatally wounded. The GRU Spetsnas participated in both Chechen wars. In the mid-1990s, these troops were in Tajikistan under the command of Vladimir Kavachok, training local soldiers and, <clears throat> liberating territories occupied by terrorists. Terrorists. Yeah. In 2008, the GRU Spetsnaz fought in the brief war against Georgia. Since 2014, the GRU Spetsnaz has carried out missions in Ukraine. In February 2014, it seized the airport and government buildings in Crimea in a special operation directed by Vladimir Putin, quote, To blockade and disarm 20,000 well-armed people, we need a certain set of personnel. Not just in terms of quantity, but also quality. We need specialists who could pull this off. That's why I gave orders and instructions to the Defense Ministry to deploy the main intelligence Directorate special forces to Crimea, disguised as reinforcements for our military facilities there. This is what Putin basically said in an interview a year later after the Moscow's annexation of the peninsula. The GRU Spetsnaz later operated in southeastern Ukraine. Russian officials have never acknowledged the GRU's role in the Donbass, but... Yeah, we know that several of their officers have died in combat, and others have actually been captured and interrogated by Ukrainians. Taken prisoner in 2015 during fighting alongside Luhansk, Alexander Alexandrov and Yevgeny Yerofeyev admitted to being GRU's Spetsnaz agents stationed in Toljaty. On May 25, 2016, they were exchanged for Nadia Savchenko, by the way, the same Nadia Savchenko. In Syria, the GRU Spetsnaz has trained local soldiers in foreign missions against ISIS and other groups. It has also directed warplanes to targets on the ground and participated in operational logistics to eliminate terrorist leaders. The GRU Spetsnaz also helped liberate Aleppo and Palmyra from ISIS. And, interestingly enough, about modern day times, because this is technically, well, even though it has turned into short history GRU, technically a news episode, just last month. Last month, journalists also learned that the GRU Spetsna is still active in Libya, of all places, where it is training soldiers loyal to, you know, their local warlord, one General Khalifa Haftar, who by now controls the eastern part of the country. Okay, so, who runs this whole apparatus? See, the director of Russia's military intelligence is appointed by the president, who controls and coordinates the activities of the entire intelligence community. Additionally, the GRU's director reports to the defense minister and the chief of the general staff of the armed forces, which, by this point, is Valery Gerasimov. By the way, the same military official whose supposed doctrine suggests using cyber forces in the course of a hybrid war. In 2016... Putin appointed Igor Korobov to serve as the director of the Military Intelligence Directorate. A career intelligence officer who started out in the 1980s, Korobov graduated from the conservatory and went on to oversee, well, basically everything in the GRU sphere of influence, Russia's intelligence gathering, including the management of all foreign stations. That appointment was actually not a surprise. Since the 1990s, the president has traditionally entrusted the job to lieutenants who supervised Russia's foreign stations. By this point, American officials have added Korobov to their sanctions list, that is, December 2016, for, quote, his efforts to undermine democracy by organizing hacker attacks. Nonetheless, Korobov and the directors of Russia's Federal Security Service, FSB, and Foreign Intelligence Service, SVR, made a really weird trip to Washington in February 2018 to meet with the members of U.S. intelligence community to discuss this war against terrorism. Even though what is terrorism at this point is, um, well, debatable. But the guy who actually was created with this GRU empire, so to speak, this weird whole apparatus thing, is one Pyotr Ivashtukin, who led the Soviet military intelligence from the early 60s until the late 80s. Ivashutin was one of those who conceived and started building an information collection system that worked around the clock. He was basically trying to warn the Soviet leaders about national security alerts in real time. His workday would begin at 7.05 a.m. A A car would take him to Gogolevsky Boulevard in Moscow, where the GRU was based in the early 1960s. He settled problems with defectors, traveled to Novocharkovsk to administer a, well, pretty much bloody crackdown on massive demonstrations in june nineteen sixty two, which again I'll speak about on a future date. He supervised intelligence gathering in hostile territories, oversaw the seizure of the Prague airport in nineteen sixty eight, and managed special operations in Afghanistan. In the only interview he ever granted, Ivashutin said as GRU director, he quote, supported the revolutionary movements, transferring them large sums of money. He died in two thousand two. Since the late nineteen sixties, with Ivashut and their command, the GRU has occupied an enormous complex on Horoshevskoye Highway in Moscow. The facility got its aquarium nickname from a book by defector Vladimir Rezun, who wrote under the pseudonym, which you might know because I've read basically all of his books and I disagree to a lot of his stuff, uh, but we'll get to that when Stalin finally hits World War II. When Stalin series get there, but um we'll have a long, long talk about Mr. Savorov. A lot of things to agree a lot of... which I don't quite buy into, but worth considering nonetheless. Anyway, he is the reason why... well, everyone... because he wrote about his experiences there... why everyone in this sphere calls the GRU headquarters the aquarium... He said the word come to him because of the building's glass exterior and because the intelligence community is a, quote, closed-off aquarium where everyone knows each other. The GRU complex is made up of a prefab 9-story buildings and surrounded by a tall metal fence. Near the front security office and a courtyard that's home to spruces and populars, there is a monument to killed military intelligence officers. In the main building's entrance hall, there is a memorial dedicated to the heroes of the Soviet and Russian intelligence work. The names listed there are the officials' real names. According to Suvorov's book, which truth to be told, many, and I mean, a lot of people, say that it's more a work of art than a documented account, but we'll get to that eventually in this show, there is a crematorium inside the GRU complex that's used to dispose of traders. Piotr Veszuten once confirmed that the facility has an oven, but he said it's for burning documents, which is also very likely, then again, they, they might be just the same thing. People who saw the inside of the GRU headquarters in the late 1990s say it was in a, quote, sorry state. The linoleum was cracked, the furniture varnish was flaking, and the walls were peeling. The whole place was remodeled in 2002, however, after Putin visited. When the restoration work was done, the agency's name appeared at the building's entrance written in the gold letters. By the way, the sign, yeah, <laughs> after it was there in gold letters, came down a day later. Just saying. When the new military intelligence building opened in 2006 in the same complex, Putin was there to lead the ceremony. As an ex-KGB officer, however, he's obviously subject to inter-service rivalry, but I guess he's past that at this point, because, you know, he also gets to play GRU against his old colleagues in the KGB so that they don't completely run him. All the office computers in the facility are completely Russian-made. There are big screens monitoring the military situation in real time, as well as the locations of all Russian nuclear submarines and strategic bombers. The new building also sports a swimming pool, spa, multiple saunas, tennis courts, basketball and volleyball courts, and a winter garden. Modern GRU officers sometimes like to joke that they were transferred to a five-star hotel. And now we get to the interesting part. Are GRU agents often exposed, especially in modern times? Truth to be told, at least a few agents are exposed almost every year. In most cases, unmasked staff at legal stations, you know, those serving in embassies or working as corporate overseas representatives, are deported immediately rather than arrested, particularly when they enjoy diplomatic status, but there are exceptions. In 1978, two Soviet intelligence operatives working under the United Nations cover were caught making a dead drop of documents about the U.S. Navy. Both spies were tried and sentenced to 50 years in prison, but a year later they were traded for five dissidents in prison in the U.S.S.R. When they returned home, the two officers were granted the Honorary State Security Officer Award. In recent years, obviously, GRU agents have been discovered in the States. In 1999, the FBI charged one Stanislav Gushev, the second secretary of Russia's embassy in D.C., with sitting in his car outside the State Department and eavesdropping on conversations conversation inside a the building. There have been other different arrests, like Japan in the year 2000, Bulgaria, 2001, Germany, 2004-2005, Qatar, 2004, Azerbaijan, 2006, Austria, 2007, and 2018, as we know now, Poland, 2010, and again 2018, Georgia, 2011, Ukraine, 2014. That's just the known cases, and, well, yeah, let's just add uh, Great Britain, 2018, to that as well. Obviously, people are working against them. On July 15, 2014, an article titled War in Putin's Spy Triad appeared on the website War Files Roo, arguing that the FSB wants, quote, to return to the status of the all powerful KGB and take over Russia's other intelligence agencies. The text included a list of 79 names, also supposedly active GRU agents operating undercover in the United States, Europe, and South America turned out that some of the people on the list were working as Aeroflot corporate representatives in the Netherlands, and others were serving as advisors at Russia's embassy in Moldova. According to investigative journalist Sergei Kanyev, the FSB's information security center was ordered to find those responsible for leaking the names of the undercover GRU agents. The center's director at the time, Sergei Mikhailov, was put in charge of the search, and the FSB sent out warnings to site registrars explaining that the personnel list is a state secret. In December 2016, however, Mikhailov was arrested himself and charged with treason, quite possibly for allegedly supplying the United States with intelligence about Russian hackers. Fun times. By this point, nothing more is known, really, about what happened to the people whose names were leaked, unless you read into Russian conspiracy sites. At least one person in on the list, an Iroflot employee who used to comment frequently on the news about the company in the United States and the Netherlands, well, has ceased all public activity. During its search, the FSB discovered that random people sometimes stumble onto GRU's agents' real names. For example, according to an investigative report by Sergei Kanyev, a police officer in Moscow's Shulchenko district woke up a man sleeping at a bus station in March 2017. When examining his personal effects, the officer found the phone numbers and names of residents at the Defense Ministry housing complex on Narodnye Opolchinyi Street. All GRU agents and instructors at the conservatory Turned out that the man had moonlighted as a kind of surf for United Russia in recent elections, and all the GRU personnel had gone to vote at the same school in Shuchinko. Now, obviously, with all of this reveal stuff, let's talk about double agents. They must have been there. And there have been quite a lot of them. For one, Dmitry Polyakov worked with American intelligence from 1961 until 1986, during which time he managed to basically supply the United States with roughly 25 boxes of classified documents, gave up 19 Soviet undercover intelligence agents and more than 150 foreign agents spying for Moscow. Essentially, that guy single-handedly paralyzed the Soviets' undercover intelligence gathering in the United States. Polyakov first served as a member of the Soviet United Nations mission in New York, where he managed covert intelligence work supervising other agents. Later in the 70s, he led the main intelligence department at the conservatory back in Moscow. In 1986, Polyakov was arrested. Hell, President Ronald Reagan tried to intercede on his behalf directly to Mikhail Gorbachev, but by that point, Polyakov had already been, you know, summarily shot. Sandra Grimes, one of the CIA officers who helped uncover Soviet double agent Aldrich Ames, called Polyakov our crown jewel and, quote, the best source that any intelligence service has ever had. Junior Colonel Oleg Penkovsky started working with British intelligence in the 1960s, and in just a few years he managed to supply MI-15 with roughly 5,000 documents which he copied using a Minox sub camera. Minox, by the way, invented here in Latvia in the VEF uh, thingy, so we're really happy about the fact that Minox has actually played some role in, well, spycraft all over the world. Penkovsky would drop the intelligence at different locations around Moscow, for example, on Tsvetnoy Boulevard or at the Arbat. Once he left a package at Vaganovko Cemetery, hidden in the poet Sergei Yesenin's grave. When he was later arrested and interrogated, Penkovsky reportedly said his signal for making a dead drop was, quote, a walk around the embankment with a cigarette in his mouth and a book in a white wrapper under his arm. He was arrested and shot in 1962, though uh, Viktor Savorov and quite a lot of other people actually state that he was incinerated in the GRU's building oven. In the early nineties, GRU colonel Stanislav Lunyv worked at the Russia station in Washington, DC, as a staffer at Itartas bureau. After being contacted by the CIA, Lunev decided to stay in the States and later wrote an autobiography through the eyes of the enemy, where he claimed the GRU agents might be assigned dead drop sites to dump chemical and biological weapons into Potomac River to poison the population of Washington DC in the event of war. Lunev said it was likely that GRU specialists had already placed poison supplies near the tributaries of the major US reservoirs. Alexander Kuzminov, a defector from Russia's foreign intelligence service, later supported this information, stating that he transported different paragons in the early nineteen nineties. Then we get to the interesting part. GRU colonel Colonel, sorry, Sergei Skripal, he worked undercover in Spain as a military attache. In 1995, he started cooperating with the British intelligence. Skripal supervised the GRU personnel department and was well acquainted with most of agency's intelligence officers. He also managed to give MI-15 information about secret Russian military sites and the Plesetsk Cosmodrome. In 2006, Skripal was arrested and sentenced to 13 years in prison. In 2010, however, he was exchanged with Alexander Zaporozhsky for undercover Russian agents captured in the States. In 1997, this very Alexander Zaporoshky quit the GRU and moved with his family to the United States, where he found work as a corporate consultant. Shortly after arriving in America, he also started cooperating with the United States intelligence community, providing information about the activities of Russian spy agencies and individual intelligence operatives. Shortly before his arrest in Russia, Zaporozhsky bought a home in Maryland, not far from Baltimore, for about $400,000. In two thousand and one, his former colleagues lured him back home, and he was arrested as soon as he set foot in the Moscow airport. Zaporoski was sentenced to eighteen years in prison, but, well, like I said just before, he was traded back to the West with Mr. Skripal in two thousand and ten. And finally, in February 2002, a policeman saw GRU colonel Alexander Sipachev enter the United States embassy in Moscow, and the officer reported it to his supervisors. Sipachev was put under surveillance immediately afterwards, and soon he met a CIA agent in Chimiki, outside Moscow, who asked him to acquire information about Russia's spies abroad. After obtaining the intelligence, Sipachev delivered it to a drop site near Moscow's Studenskaya subway station, where FSB agents, well, you know, as expected, promptly arrested him. In court, he said that he did it for the money. Which makes sense in these parts. A year before his contact with the American intelligence agents, Shipachev went through a divorce that left his ex-wife with turns out, pretty much everything. He, he basically lost his apartment and all of it. He later remarried, though, but he had to take out loans to rent a new apartment and buy furniture. The court by now sentenced him to eight years in prison, and I have no info on his further fate. But, as usual, it's... Very strange and dangerous to be a double agent. Because one of the more dangerous professions, after all, well, intelligence operatives, mm, often die in strange and unusual and cruel ways. Sergei Tetrekov who served as the head of the SVR station in New York until 2000, was the highest Russian intelligence officer ever to spy for the United States. Beginning in the mid-1990s, he started passing documents to United States officials in exchange for money. Before long, his wife was seen driving around in a sports car. In two thousand, Tetrikov received a political asylum in America. Eight years later, while promoting a book about his experiences as a Russian spy, Tetrikov said in an interview, quote, I am the highest ranking intelligence officer who's ever switched sides. If something happens to me, Russia will be excluded from the world's civilized community. A little more than a year later, in 2010, Tetrikov allegedly choked on a piece of meat at a restaurant in Florida and promptly died. In two thousand nine, GRU deputy director Yuri Ivanov also died under strange circumstances. He was in Syria on official business when his body washed up in a Turkish village. Meanwhile, the SVR officer Yevgeny Toporov, who fled to Canada in 2000, was electrocuted to death in his bathtub in 2010. In 1992, the GRU's deputy director died in a traffic collision. The next year, the head of the agency's Pacific Fleet Military Counterintelligence Department was killed in a similar tragedy. In 1996, another GRU commander, Alexei Lomanov, was hit and killed by a car. A year later, GRU Major General Viktor Shipilov fell to his death from the 15th floor of his apartment building. In 1999, GRU Major General Ivan Shelyaev also died in a car crash. In 2000, police found the body of a lieutenant colonel from the SVR who had been stabbed in the neck. Hmm, what fun. In the 2000s, Russian intelligence officers were attacked and dropped almost constantly. In 2002, an SVR officer was assaulted on Demyan Bidny Street in Moscow. A year later, unidentified men armed with handguns attacked SVR Colonel Alexander Potyev in his home, beating up both him and his son, who was then senior in college, before stealing all of his money. This, by the way, is the same intelligence operative who later defected to the United States and helped unmask Anna Chapman and other so-called illegals. Buzzfeed, by the way, recently reported that Potyev is still alive despite claims by, you know, the usual Russian state television that he has died. In 2003, unknown persons infiltrated SVR department housing through an air duct and stole an operative's laptop. A year later, unknown people, again, you know, fun guys, attacked another SVR agent on Uzurmudayev Street in Moscow, stealing his briefcase. In 2005, another SVR officer was assaulted in the street, and that same year the SVR's departmental housing was infiltrated again, through another air duct no less, and someone made off with an officer's documents and money. In 2006, someone stole a whole safe from the SVR's departmental housing units. The GRU do their job. Seriously. GRU director Igor Sergun, for example, died suddenly in January the 3rd, 2016. Officially, he passed away at his home outside Moscow after suffering a heart attack. According to, you know, US geopolitical intelligence firm Stratfor, however, Sergun died on New Year's Day in Lebanon. But then again, what happens to former intelligence operatives? And these things take many turns. In the early 1990s and early 2000s, ex-agents from the GRU often popped up in news reports about organized crime. In 1996, for example, a former officer carried out the Kotlyakovskaya cemetery bombing, which killed 14 people. Together with the Orakhovskaya gang, another former GRU operative planned to kill the president of the Russian Gold Company and staged a businessman's abduction. In 2005, ex-GRU sergeant mayor Yuri Kolchin was convicted of organizing the assassination of the Soviet dissident and Russian politician Galina Astorovyotova. In 2015, federal agents raided the home of a former GRU colonel in Nizhny Novgorod. In his garage, they discovered Kalashnikov automatic weapons, rifles, two machine guns, grenade launchers and a Makarov pistol that a year before had been used to murder a Moscow businessman. GRU Colonel Vladimir Kvachev's story, you know, that guy, you've probably heard of him. Yeah, that one's famous. He was tried for plotting to kill Anatoly Chubais and acquitted by a jury. Kvachev was rearrested almost immediately after his release from detention, this time for planning an armed revolt and acts of terrorism. A judge in the end sentenced him to 13 years of prison. After being in Moscow, deciding to leave, the intelligence committee many operatives find jobs at state corporations. In the same vein, the people expelled from the United States in 2010 along with Anne Chapman basically soon found themselves working as executives at Transneft and Rosneft. Because, you know, those are totally legit companies. Others become, like, you know, state officials, but there are some more interesting cases. In the early 2000s, Vladimir Frolov may have served as Robert Hansen's handler, allegedly working as a liaison between Russian operatives and the American double agent who passed cigarettes to Moscow for more than two decades. According to FBI report in 2002, Hansen's actions were, quote, possibly the worst intelligence disaster in United States history. He sold thousands of documents to the Russians, made 22 dead drops, and turned over 26 computer disks with data about Washington's undercover programs, double agents, and more. A graduate of the Defense Ministry's Military Institute, which is the training grounds for GRU, Frolov worked as first deputy secretary at Russia's embassy in Washington, D.C. In mid-March 2001, a few years after Hansen's arrest, Frolov left the United States in a hurry, announcing that he was taking a job at Izvestia, which the newspaper obviously immediately refuted. In his book, The Deep State, Mike Longfriend says Vladimir Frolov tried to recruit him in 2000 when he was working as an analyst for House Budget Committee. Back in Russia, Frolov established himself as a respected expert on Russian-United States relations, writing articles about spies and troll factories. The New York Times, which called him a Russian spy in 2001, now describes Frolov as a, quote, prominent international expert. Today, he has a regular column on the website Republic, where he argues that people from the SVR and GRU will repair United States and Russian relations, and weighs in on issues like, you know, the expulsion of American diplomats from Russia. This is kind of crazy, because people have tried to communicate with him. And, uh, yeah... Well, he doesn't actually talk, the journalists, obviously, because uh, when uh, some of the Russian opposition asks him for an interview about his intelligence work, all that he said was, quote, and this is real quote, The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about the Fight Club. And yeah, in the recent article about the unmasked GRU agents accused of carrying out the nerve agents attacks in Salisbury, of over the following, quote, Journalist colleague, you really shouldn't push yourself to expose the identities of active Russian intelligence operatives working undercover. This information is a state secret, and its disclosure is a criminal offense. Now, and I know this was supposed to be a news episode, but um, I just want to tell you that if you want to know more and things that, you know, this is going to get to, is that you should really read Nikolai Pusharev's GRU, Vymyslie or GRU and Interest Reality. Or you could, like, gather up collected works of Spetsna's GRU. 50 Years of History, 20 Years of War, or read Svoro's Aquarium, or Preparing a Spy, the GRU's Pets System, there are many good books about this, and trust me, I'll dig deep in the following series about this, but... What this was meant to say is that, um... Really, the GRU runs deep and terrible, and the fact that they have been incompetent lately, and this has made the news, is something just stunning. Something that somehow scares me more, because (laughs) I have studied a lot about the old GRU, the GRU, which you heard about in this episode, the GRU, which truly had the best people out there, and now, now they're being caught everywhere. I'm just saying that, if you know enough about the whole organization there, things might not be as simple as they appear to be. However, I do wish they were. Anyhow, I hope this episode made you at least a bit more interested about GRU. We'll come back to this later. But so far, well, it's been a pretty long one. So. Hope you enjoyed this. Join us on our Discord server. Become our patron. Buy our t-shirts. Order uh, printed printed out arts. Come to our website, theeasternborder.lv. Uh, go to Twitter, uh, at eastern underscore border. Join our Facebook group. Communicate with us. But go to our Discord servers. And I hope you enjoyed our episode. And do svidanje, továříš. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news! Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free